The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. There are really very few treatments of the doctrine of the sealing of the Spirit, but on today's podcast, we're going to take a look at a 19th century sermon from Pastor Benjamin Morgan Palmer on this very theme, the sealing of the Spirit. And he takes as his text, Ephesians 1.13, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And this is now the sermon. The entire passage of which this forms only a clause reads thus, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. One of the minor proofs of the inspiration of the Bible is the wonderful interweaving of the doctrines of grace into the very texture of its language, so that if a destructive criticism or a subtle exposition should succeed in deleting or in evading the more formal and explicit statements, the impossible task has to be encountered at last of eliminating the truth from these more incidental utterances. So true is this, that not one solitary doctrine in which our salvation is involved can be extirpated from the scriptures as long as one single thread of scripture language hangs upon another. Thus, for security, does the Holy Spirit embed the gospel of our salvation in the very frame of Bible phraseology. And thus are we often overtaken with sweet surprise when out of the bosom of scripture language springs up anew some precious aspect of divine truth. For example, the whole doctrine of the Trinity is enfolded in the passage which I have just read and from which the text is taken. It is the Father who seals us to the praise of his glory. We are sealed in the Son, by whom we have been redeemed, and who is the immediate object of our faith, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest of our inheritance. And thus a wide scope of doctrine is opened before us, from which, however, I must turn entirely aside, that we may consider simply the sealing itself. In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That Holy Spirit of promise, the reference undoubtedly is to what the Savior so often recited in the memorable discourse which he delivered to his disciples at the institution of the supper. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. But the comforter which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things." And bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. A little later, in the same discourse, our Lord said, It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Accordingly, at the moment of his ascension, just before the clouds received him out of the sight of his disciples, our Lord gave them the command, that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. Ten days later, when they were all gathered together praying in an upper room, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
A little later in the book of Acts, as you trace the labors of Paul, you find him at Ephesus, where are certain disciples whom he addresses with the question, Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed? The reply was, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were ye baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Which passage I take to be the key, which unlocks other instructive and impressive passages in the epistles of Paul, as, for example, in the 30th verse of the fourth chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then in the text, In whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. These passages, put together in their proper relations, seem to me, my brethren, to teach that the dispensation under which we live is preeminently the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, which the historian immediately interprets for us. This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. And the first proof given to the church of Christ's session at the right hand of the Father in glory was the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, when he descended in cloven tongues of fire and rested upon each of them and filled them with the gift of tongues. Thus, against the sneers of those who would make religion purely a matter of the reason, and who are so fond of deriding the strong and tender emotions which lie in the heart of our piety. In the face of all this scoffing, we must contend for the outpouring of the Spirit as being the special signature which is affixed to this dispensation under which we live. Says Paul in the third chapter of his second epistle to the Corinthians, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glorious, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Blessed be God, we live under this dispensation of the Holy Spirit. The great blessing which is to be realized to our faith until the second coming of our Lord is the evident presence, the manifest power of the Holy Spirit dwelling individually in the heart of every believer and collectively in the bosom of the church. The fulfillment of this promise of our ascending Lord, which began in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the day of Pentecost, you and I are to accept as only a germinant fulfillment of that which is to be repeated again and again in all the ages of the church until the great signal shall sound from the clouds and our descending Lord shall come the second time without sin unto salvation, to be glorified in his saints, to be admired in all them that believe, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." A seal is used for three distinct purposes. 
It is used to authenticate important public instruments so as to put them beyond disputation and cavil. As, for example, a minister going to a foreign court has the seal of the state impressed upon his credentials by which he is authenticated to those to whom he goes, so that his official acts under the operation of this seal become the acts of the government which he represents. Treaties formed between states become binding upon the contracting parties by virtue of the respective seals which they attach to the instrument of union, and so in a dozen other instances which I might easily specify. Again, a seal is used to mark possession, as when you write your name upon any article of dress, and when, as upon the prairies of the West, the name of the owner is branded in a monogram upon the form of the beast. Out of this use of the seal springs that ancient science of heraldry, which, in these days of leveling, is becoming more and more obsolete. When one's place in the nobility of the land is constantly asserted by his coat of arms and crest, through which he publishes not only the station which he holds, but the legal title upon which he claims it. And then a seal is used for the purpose of security. As if, for example, you should give me a package of jewels and I return it to you with the seal unbroken, a single glance of the eye reveals to you that I have not tampered with the trust. It would be a very interesting line of thought, which I do not intend, however, separately to pursue, to show how all these uses of the seal are combined in the work of the Holy Spirit, by which we are authenticated as a people of God, by which we are discriminated from the world and marked out before the eye of the great master as his peculiar possession, and by which we are secured." being kept by his power through faith unto the salvation which is ready to be revealed in the last time. I shall not touch upon these points, though they will be implicated in the line of thought which I desire to pursue this morning. The great question arises before us, how is the Holy Spirit this seal? For mark the peculiar language of the text, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. The Holy Ghost himself, in his personal indwelling in the believer, and in all that work of faith which he accomplishes, is the seal. And now the question which I desire to answer is, in what respects is the Holy Spirit, in the discharge of his special offices, this seal of God unto the Christian? In the first place, in his whole work of illumination, whereby we are brought to a firm persuasion of the truth as it is found in the Word. The Bible is, in one respect, just like any other book. It is made up of a large body of verbal propositions which we are to interpret exactly as we interpret propositions in any other book, by the exercise of the natural understanding. We may not be able to grasp the incomprehensible things which are hid within those propositions, yet we must but the laws of grammatical construction find that they are contained therein, putting word by word and clause by clause, and ascertaining by a proper exegesis the mind of the Spirit in the Word. But oh, how different is the knowledge that comes to us from this exercise of the natural understanding, from that divine knowledge which is acquired through the illumination of God's blessed Spirit! Do I not touch, as with the point of a needle, one of the features of your own Christian experience— how often is this Bible like the book that John in the Apocalypse saw in the hand of him that sat on the throne sealed with seven seals? And no man in heaven nor on earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. You bend over the pages of the inspired volume, and lo, its holy meaning is utterly locked up to your apprehension. 
not that you cannot explain the verbal proposition in which divine truth is contained, but after you have gathered the meaning of the bare words, the glorious truth which lies tucked within the folds of the language is so wrapped in obscurity that your eye cannot gaze upon the mighty mystery and your heart is not filled with comfort. And then you bow your knees in prayer to him who gives to you the promise of the comforter, the spirit of truth, who shall teach you in all things whatsoever you need to know. And you pray that your eyes may be opened to behold the wondrous things out of God's law. You pray in the very language of Paul, as found in the closing verses of this chapter, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And lo, as you are pouring out your burdened heart in these utterances of prayer, the page which was before covered with mist is illuminated as by a glory coming from the throne of God. All the darkness flees away, and you go down in the power of your faith and in the enjoyment of your love into the very depths of these divine testimonies and drink in the truth to the nourishment of your souls. I may illustrate it by a case which you will regard as analogous. A man born blind, if instructed as to the scientific theories of light, may stand before an audience with the most learned exposition of the laws of light and of all its curious phenomena. And yet, from the lack of the one organ which is essential to the experience, he has not the dimmest conception of the very light about which he is discoursing. What a caution does it suggest to those who stand where I stand today, that a man with a cultivated reason may enter into all the teachings of this book and comprehend the science of the gospel and its articulations and build it up in its symmetry and beauty before the hearer, and yet he himself be as one born blind, having no power to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and as that glory is unfolded in the second incarnation of our Lord, which we find in the sacred scriptures, when the Holy Spirit, the original whisperer and author of the word, comes with his illuminating power, there is what I cannot describe better than as a mighty seizure of the truth on our part, in its reality and in its power. We may not be able to comprehend the mystery which that truth discloses, but we grasp the fact, and the mind is borne forward irresistibly to a firm persuasion that it is the truth of God in all its incomprehensibleness. There is a seizure in which we are conscious that the mind has really grasped the truth and holds it as a reality and as a power. Along with this, there is a delightful repose of the mind upon the truth as communicated to us upon the testimony of God, which I suppose to be what the apostle intends when he speaks of the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Here, then, is one way in which the Holy Spirit is a seal. Having inspired the Bible, being himself the original author of its language, he comes with his secondary office and expounds that language, opening the eyes, quickening the intellect, communicating truth, taking the things which belong to Christ and revealing them unto us. As a result of all this, we grasp the truth and repose upon it as the verity of God. We have the seal which God affixes to his word, authenticating it to us as his truth, just as human instruments put before a human court are by the use of human seals. For it is one of the most wonderful of all the facts of Christian experience 
that by just so much as the truth is unutterably grand and surpasses our natural comprehension, by just so much as it's sealed upon the mind of the believer. Thus the deepest mysteries of grace are received with just as much firmness of persuasion as truths which are capable of the most positive demonstration. A Christian man holds to the doctrine of the Trinity and the Godhead, holds to the doctrine of the incarnation of the eternal Son, holds to the doctrine of the operation of the Holy Spirit upon the human soul in perfect consistency with the perfect spontaneity of all its own movements, utterly incomprehensible as they all are with just as much confidence in their truth as he receives the facts which can be ascertained to him by the evidence of his senses. Through this illumination of the Holy Spirit, we are borne forward to this persuasion of the truth as we find it in the Word of God. In the second place, the Holy Spirit is a seal in all those fruits of grace which in our progressive sanctification He works within us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit, says the same apostle in another place, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And when the Holy Spirit, according to the promise of Jesus Christ, dwells within us, he discharges a threefold office. He is a witness to our adoption. He is the seal of our personal acceptance before God. He is the first fruits of the salvation which we experience and therefore the earnest of the inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Dwelling in our hearts, if so be we are God's children, he discharges this threefold office of a witness, of a seal, and of an earnest, as he works in us all those fruits of the Spirit which I have just enumerated. But here a difficulty emerges. How can we discriminate in these fruits of the Holy Spirit within us between his testimony and our own? For according to the law, which seems to be accepted under the government of God, as it is necessary under that of man, every truth shall be established to our satisfaction under the testimony of two witnesses. Paul recognizes this in the eighth chapter of his epistle to the Romans when he discriminates between the witness of the Spirit and our own testimony. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, the question arises... If this witness of the Spirit is in part found to consist in what we inwardly experience, how are we to distinguish his testimony from the witness which our own spirit bears to the same fact? I think the solution is here. These fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, are all certified to us upon the testimony of consciousness as being our experiences. The peace is our peace. The love is is our love. The joy is our joy. The long-suffering is our long-suffering. We have the testimony of our own spirit, which is nothing else than the deliverance which consciousness makes as to the fact that these are acts which proceed from us under the operation of those laws which govern and control them. We know them to be ours, and hence they constitute, under the testimony of consciousness, the witness of our spirit. But Mark, not one of those graces would ever exist unless the Holy Spirit had first planted the germ within us, nor would those germs be developed into growth and fruit-bearing if the Holy Ghost did not preside over that new life which he has imparted, exciting and directing those graces as that they are brought up from their obscurity, where they are hid away as secret principles in the depths of the soul. Thus you see that the two, though blended together, are distinct. You have the witness of the Spirit of God in your own spirit. 
Your own spirit bears witness to the fact that you have certain exercises, but those exercises never could have an existence if they were not produced and constantly developed by the indwelling spirit of God. When you are reading, in your own experience, the witness of your own spirit, you are at the same time reading the witness of the Holy Ghost. Just as sometimes happens with an ancient manuscript, there is a plain reading upon the surface of the parchment, and then there is another reading, beneath that which is patent to the eye, of some more ancient writer who has penned his thoughts in a cipher that is concealed beneath. So does the Holy Ghost with his finger write upon the heart these evidences of our acceptance with God, and then consciousness-bearing testimony that these are our experiences. We have the witness of the Holy Spirit mingled and blent with the witness of our spirit. This may be illustrated by reference to one feature of the Christian life, which perhaps is among the most conspicuous. It is universally true that no past evidences ever brought a soul to an assurance of hope. They subserve an important end in relieving us from the pressure of despair. It is a great support sometimes to remember the Lord from the hill Mizar and call to mind his past mercies. Often on our despondency we exclaim, Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Yet recalling the way by which the Lord has led us, and the conflicts in which we have so abundantly triumphed, we are preserved from sinking into absolute despair. I appeal to the experience of every saint in this assembly. If the remembrance of any past communion with God, if the recollection of any former joy or of anything written in the leaves of the book which you have sealed up ever brought you to a confident assurance of your being a child of God. The great law of grace under which we live is the law of faith. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Under the operation of this law, there can be no comfort, there can be no joy, except in the present exercise of faith as it immediately rests upon a personal God and Redeemer. Just as it was with the Israelites when they passed through the desert, they sought to gather up in one day the manna that should last them for two days. And lo! It bred worms and stank. And the past Christian experience upon which any of you shall try to lean for the hope and strength of the present will be an experience like that manna. Before your eyes it shall breed worms and you shall turn from it with loathing. We must go out with the rising sun and gather the manna fresh every day in the exercise of a new faith, it being the law of the spiritual life as well as of the natural, that every moment shall have its own breath. We breathe in the air, and we breathe it out. And by these repeated breathings we live. Thus we draw our life from Christ, and by these repeated breathings of the soul we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. See then how the Holy Ghost, dwelling within us as a witness, as a seal, as an earnest, plants within us the graces of a Christian, develops them into action, directs them in all their movements, lifts them out of the darkness, holds them up before the mind so that we recognize them as our own, and thus the two testimonies are united in the affirmation of the common fact that we are the children of God. In the third place, the Holy Spirit is a seal in the comfort and joy which he sheds abroad in us. Says Paul in the 14th chapter of his epistle to the Romans, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It is not a kingdom that comes by observation, breaking in upon you from without. It is within you, and the proof of its existence is what you find in yourself, righteousness and joy and peace. 
Again, in the 15th chapter of the same epistle, he prays on behalf of the Roman Christians. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. But I turn from these apostolic testimonies to the dearer voice of our own Lord. You remember the benediction which he pronounced upon his disciples in the hour of their sorrow when he was about to depart from them? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Nor could he finish his discourse until he rose to a higher pitch and said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Will you pardon the personal reference when I say that for many years I have longed with a longing indescribable to be able to preach two sermons on those two texts? And could I at any time only say to this people all that lies in that word of Jesus, My peace I give unto you. And then if I could add what the Savior means when he says, My joy I give unto you, I would be willing to have these lips sealed in the silence of the tomb. My peace I give unto you. O blessed Jesus, thy peace, the restfulness of thy perfect human soul in accomplishing all thy Father's will, keeping his commandments and glorifying his justice. That peace which brought serenity to thee as thou didst stand upon the threshold of thy great agony when thou couldst overleap the bloody death, and in the very foretaste of all that was bitter in the experience of the curse, could there speak of thy peace and of thy joy, willing to shed these down upon the church as the atmosphere which it should breathe, and finding their consummation at last in the rest of the eternal Sabbath, and then that flood of joy which fills heaven with such unspeakable splendor and glory. Is not the whole gospel of the blessed God lying in the words, my peace, I give unto you. Ah, brethren, when the Holy Ghost comes in the name of Jesus Christ and sits upon his throne in the human heart, he puts out his holy hand and touches all the emotions and affections and instincts of our nature and lifts us above this world of sense to fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are nearer to God than ever Moses was when he stood upon the mount within the cloud and talked with God face to face. And it is that the peace which the Savior spake in his benediction to his disciples is found to be the peace which passeth all understanding, which is unspeakable and full of glory. And when you have it, as at times you do in some of its measure at least, you have the sealing of the Holy Ghost bearing witness with your spirit that you have really passed from death to life. In the fourth place, we find the sealing of the Holy Ghost in the boldness given us in our approach to God and in the mighty power which we have in prayer. If with your natural reason you undertake to bear up under the conception of God, it will be too weighty for you. Think of him in his absolute eternity, who was, who is, who is to come, having his being within himself, the uncaused, the infinite, the eternal Jehovah. Stretch out the pinions of your imagination, and even though they should have the eagle's strength which ascends even in the face of the sun, they cannot bear the weight of this thought of God's existence as one, eternal now. Then think of his omnipresence, so that if we fly to the distant parts of the sea, his hand shall lead us, and his right hand shall hold us, looking down into the secret folds of every human heart, and taking up every thought in its earliest germ, and think of that mighty power which takes up the mountains and the islands as a very little thing, and holds the stars in the palm of his hand, 
and say, if you do not find your reason reeling under the majestic conception until at last you are crushed into the postures of adoring worship, yes, thrice blessed by thy name, eternal God, when human thoughts become too heavy for human reason to sustain, they glide so easily into frames of devotion. Where we cannot reason, it is given us to adore. And what cannot be sustained in thought may at his footstool become the language of our worship. And yet, with these overwhelming conceptions of God's majesty and glory, with what boldness do you in your closet unveil before him all the secrets of your nature? It is worth the labor of studying the Greek tongue in order to read that one word which tells you what this boldness is with which a man in his prayer approaches God, the power of telling him, who knows it before, all that is within us. Secrets which we dare not breathe into the ear of the most confidential friend, lest it should rupture the bonds of love we can reveal to infinite purity itself. We can pray in the language of the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. What power, too, the Holy Spirit gives us in prayer. It is seen in those vehement desires which become the instinct of the newborn soul and bear a man to the mercy seat so that he shall press his bosom against the very altar and there plead and wrestle until the prayer is answered. And then the patience, with all this passion of desire, which enables us to wait at that altar, holding fast to the Savior's work and God's promise through weeks and months and years of dark discouragement. There are parents listening to the sound of my voice who have been praying for five and twenty years for the conversion of their sons, daughters, as from the sense of eternal things they feel the importance of their salvation. And yet through five and twenty years of despondency and trial, they are today kneeling with the same hopefulness that God will at last remember his covenant, in which he has said, I will be a God unto thee and unto thy seed after thee. Oh, the power in this emergency of desire at the mercy seat, and then the power and patience to wait there through long years in which God seems to deny the suit and to turn away the face of his throne. How could it be unless the Holy Ghost, indicting these petitions within us, held us to that throne of grace until in the fullness of time God shall appear from the bosom of the cloud and drop down the spiritual blessings upon us for which our souls have been praying through so many years. You see in this the sealing of God's Holy Spirit when by his indwelling power he keeps us to our duty and holds us steadfast in faith so that we do not waver even in the dark. Lastly, we have the sealing of the Holy Ghost in the stimulus which he continually gives to the spiritual life whereby we are all the time lifted above our conflicts and above our toils and my brethren above our griefs. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you, says the Savior. When the world would give its peace, it is by fending off trouble and sorrow from us. But the Lord gives us peace when we are in the bosom of anguish, almost like that which broke the heart of Jesus when he passed beneath the curse of the broken law. How constant is the grace which quickens the spiritual life and enables us to lift up the hands which hang down, to strengthen the feeble knees, and to pursue the path of patience unto the end. My brethren... Is it my experience and not yours? Do you not know something of the weariness of this constant battle with yourself, with the world, with the devil, 
Are there not moments when your energies flag, when it seems as though you must yield at last to the combined alliances against you and give up the contest? And yet there comes, in the very hour of exhaustion, a strange strength, and we lift ourselves up from every defeat and lay hold upon the toil and duty of life and work on, even though the nerves and the muscles are all aching with the pain, until God shall say, It is enough, and give us the rest that shall come after it. What power, too, we have to go down under accumulated sorrows, lower than Jonah ever went in the belly of the whale when the earth was her bars, was about him. God's strokes fall one after another upon your head, and you are driven deeper and deeper into the billows which break over you. But just there, in the depths of the sea, you are able to say with David, Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the day, time, and in the night. His song shall be with me in my prayer unto the God of my life. The life of God in the human soul is vividly compared by the old writers to a spark of fire upon the bosom of the vast ocean. Yet though engulfed in the waves, because it is a coal of life, it burns on still amidst the dashing billows. Thus is the divine life quickened within us and stimulated by the indwelling spirit who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. But I must close this discourse. Perhaps I have wearied you, and yet the truth lies so near all our experience that I think you can hardly tire of it. Let me, in the application, address three special thoughts to you. All that the Holy Spirit does in this matter of sealing, he does in and by the word. Do you notice the emphasis of the Lord's language? When he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. He shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Now the third person of the Godhead is not restricted in his powers, but as the Son subordinates himself in his office to the Father, so the Holy Ghost subordinates himself in his office to the Son. He could teach us all science, and yet he does not. He could communicate all philosophy, but he does not. He simply takes the things which belong to Jesus Christ and shows them unto us. The sphere of his illumination is a written word, and this is our protection against fanaticism. Said Luther, when the mystics of his day raved around him of their secret inspiration and the impatience and scorn which belonged to his strong heart, I slap your spirit upon its snout. All revelations must be brought to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Avant, avant, as specters from the world of darkness, all these revelations of spirits. God has spoken in the person of his own Son who shall come after Jesus Christ. The Son, revealing out of the depths of the divine nature these transcendental mysteries of the Godhead, and by the power of the Holy Ghost embalming them in human speech, shall we have, after this, the babblings of spirits conjured up around a table in a darkened room? We need no other revelations, since we have the utterance of God's own thoughts through the speech of his own Son and by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. No, the church stands impregnable upon these scriptures as her tower of defense, and nothing is to be received by us as the truth of God which is not in conformity with the teachings of this book. Behold how Peter binds the sanctification of the believer with the work of Jesus Christ and with the word of truth. Seeing, says he, ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. And then, as though this were not enough, adds directly after, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. Even when the Holy Ghost quickens the sinner into life, the very seed of that life is the word of God. And this is our protection against every form of delusion. 
If in your incredulity you reject the evidences of the gospel, you will come at last to the stupendous credulity of believing everything else. As it has been quaintly put by another, when a man has lost faith in God, then he begins to have faith in ghosts. This witness of the Holy Spirit is intermittent, yet progressive. Most Christians are troubled on this doctrine of assurance. Oh, that I could be assured beyond all doubt that I am a child of God. They do not know that they have had this assurance a thousand times. My brethren, there is not a moment of real spiritual communion with God when that assurance is not yours. When in the closet you are able to weep over your sins and feel a true shame for them and in honest boldness uncover them all to God, in those moments when you are holding fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, just then you can no more doubt your acceptance with God than you can doubt your natural existence. In the experience through which you are passing, so full of sweetness, the sealer is setting his seal upon you. And you know by the mouth of two witnesses, that of your own spirit and that of the Holy Ghost, that you are a child of God. But the misconception is here. What these Christians mean is an assurance which shall be the permanent and fixed habit of the soul. Now that is a very different thing. Our misfortune and our guilt is that we are not always in the exercise of faith, that these experiences so full of joy and comfort are occasional and not constant. It is a mark of high sanctification when faith becomes a steady principle, always pointing to God and to the Redeemer, and love goes forth in constant exercise. Only in that case does this assurance, which was occasional before, become the fixed and permanent condition of the soul. Make this distinction. Strive for that degree of grace when your peace shall be as a river but gratefully accept the sealing of God's Spirit in even those joys which you are prone to disparage because of their inconstancy. See how near Christian experience on earth comes to Christian experience in heaven. The same love, the same joy, the worship, the same obedience there and here. The conditions under which these are rendered differ in the two worlds, but as to the essence of the thing, what you are now, you are to be hereafter in heaven. How solemn it makes this earth. The germ of it all is here. This world, darkened as it is by sorrow and sin, is only the porch of the great temple through which we are passing only to enter into the blessed mysteries of God within. Let us hold fast to our faith and realize at every step our dependence upon the Holy Ghost, just as we realize our dependence upon Jesus Christ. When conscience accuses you, you go to the blood, you kneel at the cross, and you depend absolutely upon the one perfect sacrifice offered for sin. Just so. Depend upon the Holy Ghost, whose office it is to seal you in all the faculties of your nature to God's service here and to the enjoyment of Him hereafter. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.